You know, we have worship team members that are sitting in the pews, and, you know, it's just a testament to God's faithfulness. I, I can't tell you how many times, you know, yeah, we have people move and people come, and, and we find ourselves in a situation where Rennie and I will be talking, and we'll be like, man, what are we going to do? We, we, know, we no longer have a drummer, we no longer have this, we no longer have that. And I was just looking this morning, I go, we have three people, one person playing piano, two people on keyboards, we have two people on guitars, we have a drummer, we have, God has just blessed us, and and. What's exciting is that they don't come up here to perform. They just come up to worship God, and, and we're allowed just to worship God with them. And, uh, and I love it because they are using their gifts that God has given them. And, um, and it's awesome to see. Well, I hope you guys had a great Christmas. I- I'm just kind of curious. Anybody wearing anything that they actually got at Christmas? A couple people, right? All right. I'm not going to ask what, but whoever got it for you is probably pleased right now. Right? That probably like, hey, that means that you like it, right? I just got to say, that, you know, at Christmas, and this is not really part of my message, it just, it just came early. Man, God gave us the greatest gift of all. I mean, the gift that God gave us, it outshines the sun. It's more precious than diamonds and jewels. It's more costly than gold. And he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. And, and it's just it's an amazing gift. And what are we doing with it? How many of you are wearing that. Like, you know, when you get something beautiful from, from somebody, you display it. I mean, you know, this is wonderful. Put it in the drawer and just leave it there for a year. And when you get something precious, it's kind of like, man, it's your joy to show it off. And, and you go, oh, my so-and-so gave me this, you know. And so, man, when God gives us something, man, we should be displaying that for the world to see. Because the gift that he gave us is, it's more valuable than anything. Anyway, all right, I'll keep going. All right. This past Christmas Eve um, was a great, I, I love Christmas Eve, it, 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 they're just great services, we've been doing some things um, for the last few years, uh, I've enjoyed it, we've been reading scriptures, just having different people read, and I've enjoyed it, but this year I just felt like God wanted me to do something a little bit different, I felt like he wanted me to preach, um, a very short message, um, somehow to do it all in an hour, I'm getting better at that, I think, but anyway, um, but we had... Um, just a full house season. You never know what you're going to get. You could have 100 people. You could have a lot of people. We had almost 200 people in here, and it was awesome to see that, that people are coming out on Christmas Eve in the busyness of life in the middle of a week and saying, hey, I'm going to come, and I'm just going to, um, I'm just going to worship God. I'm not hitting people who couldn't be here. I know different things come up, but it was just really, really good to see. But one of the things that we talked about on um, this past Christmas Eve, and, and, and something that we do every, every Christmas, I mean, Christmas really is... Lights. I mean, lights are everywhere. You know, I think, you know, more and more lately I've seen like Halloween lights, which are always kind of creepy, but it's like they're trying to compete or Easter. Everyone's trying to do, but, but at Christmas time, there are lights everywhere. In fact, in, in the new neighborhood that we live in, they kind of go overboard. I put some lights up, and Lori and my dad said to me, Selwyn, you're going to have to up your game next year because your house looks miserable compared to the rest of these houses. So, so we took advantage of, of some of the sales. Um, right the day after Christmas to get some lights because you have to do something. But it's, it's really fitting that people decorate and celebrate Christmas with, with lights. I mean, a lot of them don't know what they're doing, but Jesus came as a light in the darkness. And so for us to bring light into darkness, and isn't it interesting that I don't know if you ever do this, but my family will always say, hey, Dad, can we go look at Christmas lights? And when we want to go look at Christmas lights, we don't just go look at, like, you know, my display of Christmas lights. We want to go to a good display of Christmas lights. And so they would be like, Dad, I heard about this house. In fact, the Chapman's texted us, texted Courtney, like, hey, you got to check out this house on, like, number so-and-so. And so, you know, we drove there after Christmas Eve, and there was just lights everywhere. And, and 
people love to see lights. They're drawn to lights. And people will come, you know, and, and, and just to look at these. And so there's something about light. Light is incredibly important. You know, when we were on the uh, islands in, in, in uh, Vanuatu, we had generators and, and we would put some light bulbs up here and there. But light draws people. You know, fire draws people as well. But we actually, our neighbors uh, in the island, we actually ran a long uh, electrical cord to one of their uh, huts. It's called the Nakamal. It was kind of like a gathering place. And we put a light bulb in there. And uh, it became, I mean, you put a light bulb in, it just became a gathering place. And it, it's interesting what light can do. It seems like people are happier when they're gathering around the light. Things become more festive in the light. And so this is what light really does. But the light bulb was invented about 134 years ago. Uh, and today, 134 years later, with all of our advances and technology and pushing forward, isn't it interesting that there's still 1.5 billion people in the world that don't benefit from the light bulb or from artificial light simply because they don't have electricity? 134 years later, and light to us is really nothing. We can flip switches on. We have lights all over the place. Uh, but, but still, 134 years later, there's still 1.5 billion people. You know, at the end of the service, we, we, we celebrated, we, we did communion, and I had one candle, and it was lit in the communion table. And we've done this probably every, every you know, I mean, Christmas Eve service isn't really a Christmas Eve service, in my opinion, unless you have a candlelight service. How many of you guys enjoy the candlelight, right? It's always a little scary when you see little kids holding candles in a building that's almost 200 years old. But... But we would take this light, and, I would, and, and, and the deacons, before my deacons were up here, and I'd take the light, and I lit it from the candle, and on, on the communion table, that light and that candle, that, that single candle on the communion table represented, and I probably didn't explain this, but it represented Jesus. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. That's what he said. So Jesus came as the light of the world. And so at communion, you know, the lights are dark, and we have this, this candle that represents Jesus Christ, and we take communion, it represents why he came. I mean, he came, he, bo- he was born, he took our sins upon him, he, he died, he rose again, he forgave us, he set us free. I mean, he's the light of the world. And so we symbolically take this light, and I light my candle, and then I just go and I go to four deacons, and I light their candles. At that point, you guys are standing, you have a candle, or your kids have your candle, whatever, but they simply just go over, and they light a candle in each pew. And we do that for the sake of time. If we had more time, we would just light one candle, and you know what we do? What do you guys do? You take your light, you turn and you light the person's candle next to you. Isn't that what we do? And what I love about this is the symbolism of it. As I stand back here, I just slowly, I get to see something you don't. I get to see slowly as lights begin to fill the sanctuary. And before long, the sanctuary is actually brighter. It's actually glowing. People can't wait to get their candle lit. and They can't wait to light somebody else's candle. And before long, this whole place is glowing with candlelight. We could shut every artificial light off in this place, and it would be bright enough in here. And everybody's holding the candle. At no time have I ever said, please climb over the pews and light the guy's candle six rows back. No, we just simply say, hey, let's keep it simple. Turn to the person standing right next to you. Turn to the person that's in your vicinity. Turn to the person who's so close to you that you're rubbing shoulders with and just simply light their candle. And the result of that is actually amazing. And it started with one candle. It started with one light. And it was effective because you simply did what I asked you to do. And so we watched this take place. And I think I even said this Christmas Eve, I really hope that we grasp the symbolism of it. 
You know, it, so many times this can become a tradition, like communion can become a tradition. We can do it out of ritual, out of habit, because oh, this is what we do, without really taking to heart what we are doing. Do you realize the symbolism of what you're doing at Christmas Eve? What we are saying is this, as Jesus has lit my candles, Jesus has, has become a light into my path, as Jesus has saved me, now let me take what he has given me and pass it to the person right next to me. I mean, if we don't grasp that, then we're missing so much of what Jesus said. It'd be a miserable candlelight service. If I lit your candle, you're like, nope, it's mine right here. I'm not sharing it with anybody, right? Why would people get angry with you? But God the Father, see, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. So God the Father sent Jesus as the light of the world, didn't he? He sent him here on purpose with a plan. And then Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 18, he says this, as he's talking to God, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. God, if you have sent me, I am now sending them. I am sending the ones that I am pouring into. See, Jesus came with a mission. It was a mission that he was very intentional about. It was a mission that he was very focused on. It was his purpose. And at age 12, he knew all about it. At age 12, he said this, I must be about my father's business. Not I should or I probably ought to. No, I must be about my father's business. At age 12, he said, my life, my purpose, my mission is about him. And then 21 years later, dying on a cross, he said what? It is finished. At age 12, he knew. And age 33, he completed the mission that God, his father, had given him. And that mission that God the Father gave Jesus Christ, before he ascended to heaven, he handed it to us. He said, my mission is finished. I have done what I came to do. And I have handed the completion, the follow-through, the carrying out of this mission. I am handing into the twelve that I've poured into. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 through 20, the Great Commission, we know this well. It says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I want to tell you that this morning you're not going to learn anything new. All right? You're not going to go home and go, you know, this is so great. I'm so glad Pastor Selman preached this because I had no idea about this. I'm going to te teach and preach on something that you've probably heard a thousand times. Something you're going to go, yeah, I know all this. But you know the problem with so, much of us, so many of us is we have a head knowledge of it and not really a heart knowledge. We have a head knowledge that stays up here and it doesn't actually transform into action in our lives. And so really, if you, if you look at that kind of knowledge, is it really knowledge at all? See, God's not interested in our head knowledge. God says, no, I want that knowledge of what I'm speaking to you to be transformed into the way that you live. We've been talking about, about purpose, and we've been doing Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. We've been doing it, actually, I counted the months this morning. We've been doing it for four months. Um, we're actually ending it um, uh, next week. I think I keep saying that, all right? We're ending it next week. But, but the purposes that we've talked about so far, the purpose, number one, was this. Our purpose was, one of our purposes is that we were made to love him, 
All right? Our second purpose is we were made to be part of his family. Our third purpose was we were made to become like him. The longer we live, we should strive to be more like Jesus Christ. Our fourth purpose was we were made to serve him and serve others. And serving others, we are serving him. And our fifth purpose, what we're talking about this morning, is that we were made to tell others about him. We were made for mission. Just as Jesus came with a mission, with a purpose, you and I were made for mission. Our lives are so much more than about ourselves. And if we miss this, you're going to waste your life as a Christian. If you miss this, and if this part of your life isn't real and lived out, if this part of your life is simply a head knowledge, I want you to know you will get to the end of your life and you will have wasted your life. Because the only thing that matters in your life is what matters in eternity. There aren't many things that are eternal. So you and I were made for mission. God created us not just to receive Him, but to share Him. Don't just take, but give as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says this, All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He reconciled us to Him, but He also gave us the ministry of reconciling people to Him, of pointing people to Him. And this is huge. Your mission and my mission is a continuation of Jesus' mission on earth. And as His followers, we are to continue what He started. Not just to come to Him, but to go for Him. I've said this before, but man, if you really think about this, if Jesus Christ, the one who loves us so much, man, he loves people. He loves people. And and, and if, if that Jesus is living in me and truly dwells in me, how can that not be shining through me? The only way that happens is if if Selwyn still lives very strongly in my life. If I have a stronger role in my life than Christ has in my life. Hey, listen. Loving people is not easy. Now, I, I, Lori has told you, my idea of what I think of happiness is to have about 100 acres in my house right in the middle, away from everyone. All right? It's not very Christian. It's not very pastoral. It's something I have to work on. I, I'm, that's the flesh in me. That is something where I just want to, I just kind of just, you know, that's where, and, and, and I, you know what my prayers are like? God, help me to love people the way you love people. I have to pray that. I have to pray that. And come on, you guys probably aren't different than I am. Help me, God, to love people the way you love them. Not, God, help me to love the people that love me. That's easy. Help me to love the people that I like, the people that are my friends, the people who treat me well. God, help me to love the people that treat me terribly. God, help me to love the people that do not want to see me coming down the road. Help me to love the people who who are disgusted by me, who don't like what I do for a living or don't like anything about me. God, help me to love those people because your word says that while I was still a sinner, you died for me. And so that kind of love, that love of Jesus that says, you don't even like me, you don't even love me, but I'm dying for you because I love you. I want that kind of Christ, I want that heart to live in me. And it is not easy. It is not, man, it's hard to love people, it's hard to love Christians. Let alone non-Christians sometimes. 
And so Jesus came. That kind of, that, that, that's the God that comes and lives and dwells inside of us. And that's the God that needs to shine through us. And you know what we have to do? In order for him to shine through us, we have to constantly conquer ourselves. We have to recognize our sin. We have to recognize who we really are. Not who we pretend to be, but who we really are. And go, you know what? The reality of it is, someone, that you fail in this area because you don't love people the way Christ loves them. And as long as I recognize it and I can bring that before God and say, God, this is not right in my life. It's something maybe I struggle with, but God, I need you to help me conquer this through your strength, through your power, that I can become more like you, that I can love people more genuinely. And so that's, that's all of our challenge. See, this commission was given to everyone. It wasn't just given to your pastors. It wasn't just given to missionaries. It was given to you. It was given to me. And it's not optional. It was given to you. So God is saying to you, listen, I'm telling you to go out and make disciples of all nations. And we are terrified to do it. Your public speaking is the number one fear in the world. People would rather die than speak. They're actually more afraid of speaking in public than they are dying. That's truth. That's, they've done a study on this. They are ter- people getting up. You get used to it after a while, but getting up here is terrifying. But you know, it's more than that as well. You know, it, 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 I think it's the, the fear of being rejected, the fear of saying something stupid in front of everybody. I get to do it every week, so I'm used to it. But, but honestly, with you guys, sometimes just going up to somebody, maybe going up to somebody that you know, maybe going up to somebody, a neighbor or a friend, man, we're intimidated by it. And sometimes, even though we know them, when we get too close, when we get too personal, when we feel like, man, maybe am I stepping across a line by, by speaking into their lives, that can be terrifying, and that can keep us from doing what God's called us to do. Isn't it interesting how the Bible says, perfect love casts out all fear? Isn't it interesting how if you're a mom or a dad and your house is on fire and you're outside those flame, and your kids are inside, those flames aren't really as scary to you? How many stories you hear about people running into a burning house to rescue their kids? Or firemen. And, and, and people are awarded going, man, listen, perfect love casts out fear. Like when you go, no, there's somebody in there, and if I don't move, they're going to die. The flames, I don't care about the flames. I've got to get to that person. And so, man, that kind of love just casts out fear, and they run after I mean, you see great feats of strength where, where, where you've seen some of these articles where, where one person will lift something incredibly heavy because they get this adrenaline rush, and I believe God helps them, and they pick things up that save people. Perfect love casts it all fear, but why is it that we can look into the eyes of our neighbors and our coworkers and we can be okay with them going to hell? Why is it that we can walk up to someone and I can stand and I have a conversation, I can have a relationship with them, I can eat lunch with them every single day, and I can talk to them, but man, when that opportunity comes where I could maybe share something, I hesitate and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I wait and I hold back and maybe I don't say what I should say. Because maybe you deal with what I deal with. Because maybe for you, you don't have the love for people that Christ has for people. And so maybe when I say, hey, Selwyn needs work on this, and I pray for that heart, maybe we all need it. 
because we can find ourselves in those places where we go, no, perfect love casts out all fear. I'm actually going to bow to my fear and not talk to them than to crucify my fear and go anyway. But you know what? If they reject me, it's okay. See, you and I are not responsible for their response to what we say. But we are responsible to say what we need to say to them. You you know, it's witnessing. What is a witness? If you look at what a witness is in a trial, a witness is not not the attorney. The witness isn't trying to prove anything. What is the witness doing? The witness is simply saying, hey, I was there. And this is what I saw, and this is what I experienced. All right? And so we are witnesses for Christ. You know what that simply means? It's really hard to argue with someone's experience. You can go up to someone and say, listen, this is all I know, and this is where I was, and this is how broken I was, and this is how I found Jesus, and this is now where I am today. Theologically, you want me to present some kind of argument. Well, maybe I can't get into all that. All I can know is this is my experience. No matter what you say or whatever, maybe you want to prove me wrong or whatever you want to, all I know is I found Jesus and I am no longer who I used to be. And that's what he's done in my life. And that's what he's done in this person's life and this person's life. You know what we found, especially with youth, and we've talked about this as, as, as the youth leader group has, man, it's hard to keep anyone's attention. I mean, I, I watch you guys go to sleep while I preach, okay? So I know it's hard, all right? And, and some of you are repeat offenders, you know? But the best is this when I see this. But anyway, it's hard to keep people's attention. I know that, all right? But when you can keep a teen's attention for 45 minutes because you're telling your story, that's impressive. Tell your story. Jesus said, you're my witnesses. What are you witnesses of? You're, you're witnesses of what he's done in your life. What have you learned from Christ? What have you learned about him in your failures? I was reading this in the book, and I had to pause, and I go, you know what? I've learned a lot about who God is in my failures. You know what I've learned about God in my failures? I've learned that it's never my strengths that really make me anything. It's always his strengths. What have I learned about God in my anxieties or my worries? What have I learned about God in my sicknesses? And, what have I, and, and as I went through all of these things and I paused and I thought about them, you know what I, I came it was, it was a repeated, repeated theme for me is that God is always in control. And I thought, I even said, Lori, Lori, you know how much time I've wasted worrying? How many times I've, how much time I've wasted worrying about things? To find out later to go, yeah, you know what? could have saved yourself three or four days of headache or heartache on that because God was faithful. We pour in and we pour in. And then I realize, man, I don't know that I'm learning a whole lot sometimes. I go, here's what God taught me in this. And here's what God's taught me in this thing. And there are different circumstances, different situations, same outcome. God is in control. And God is authority. And God is faithful. God is in control. God is authority. And God is faithful. God is in control. God is in authority. In every single situation. And then I come to the next trial. And guess what? I start worrying again. As if I haven't learned anything. See, we can know something with our head, but has it really penetrated our hearts? See, when you begin to tell your story, it's amazing what it does for the people around who listen, but it's also amazing for what it does for you. 
there are far more people led to Christ by people telling their stories, not trying to convince them, so not trying to come up with some you know, fantastic argument. I've never argued anyone to Christ. Just haven't. Because normally when you argue, their walls go up. I'm not trying to defeat them. I'm not trying to win. I'm just saying, hey, take it or leave it. This is who God is in my life. We're his witnesses. And he says, man, just go out. Just go out and witness. Just go out and tell them about your experience with me. Just tell them who I am. Tell them who I am in your life. Tell them about the struggles that you've been through. And if it wasn't for the tests, we wouldn't have a testimony. We've heard that, right? If it wasn't for the trials, if it wasn't for the hardships we've been through, we wouldn't be able to talk about his faithfulness. And so every time, and it's easy to say this on the other side, when you're going through it, it's not so easy, but it's in the midst of it that God gives you that, that, that reassurance of his, of his faithfulness, of his authority. And so in all of this, God says, now, listen, I have, I have taken it, I have taken a light, and I have lit your candle, and you're holding a testimony of my faithfulness, of my authority, of my control. And there are other people who are, who are just, just in darkness in their lives. And he says, now take that witness of who I am and light their candles so that they don't have to be in darkness. And if they jerk their candle away from you, it's not your fault. And if they take that and they put it out, it's not your fault. But he says, go and tell them about me. He says to Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, he says this. This is God speaking. When I say to a wicked person, you will surely die. And you, Ezekiel, do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will die for their sin, and I will hold you accountable for their blood. God's saying, when I tell those people doing evil in my judgment, saying, hey, if you continue doing this, you will die. And God's saying, what you're doing is wrong. He says, in Ezekiel, if you don't go and tell them, because the reality of it is, Ezekiel, I don't want them to die. I want them to be saved. So Ezekiel, if you don't go and warn them that they might find life, their blood is on your hands. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God wants everyone to know him. And he's placed that responsibility in your life and my life. And he has said, listen, all I'm telling you to do is take what I've done in you and share it with those around you. And I, I said earlier, it, it, it's interesting, none of you guys are going to go home and say, oh, I've learned something today I didn't know. You guys know this. All right? But there are 7.1 billion people in the earth, on the, in the world right now, and out of the 7.1 billion, there are 2.1 billion that claim to know Jesus. Now, you and I know that not everyone who says Jesus is saved. So for the sake of argument, we'll just say that they are. That means there are 5 billion people who are walking around in darkness. They are walking around holding candles that desperately need a light. And it's not happening. And so what's sad is that I can say to a church of this size, hey guys, you've heard this message a thousand times, but the reality of it is it's not a message we know at all. Because it's not a message that we're carrying out very well. And so Jesus says, listen, go 
and impact the world. 134 years after the invention of the light bulb, there's still 1.5 billion people in darkness. 2,000 years after the light of the world came to this world, there's still 5 billion people walking in darkness. And the light is here. And the light is in every country and every community. I want you to watch this video. Sorry, Jimmy, did I catch you by surprise? On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money in an effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos. Immediately, the property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club, where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers You know, it's, it's talking, it's an illustration of the church, and, um, and unfortunately it's true. But you know, churches are made up of people. And churches' actions reflect the hearts of people. You know, it's the hearts of people that change directions of a church. And so, you know, although the church may be a life-saving station, I also want to say that each one of us is a life-saving station. 
Each one of us does a lifeguard. Each one of us has been equipped. Each one of us has safety buoys or whatever that we can toss. Each one of us is that. And the question is, what are we doing? What are we doing to save people? What are we doing to go out to those who are drowning? How many people are drowning around us and how many of us are walking by and how many of us just turn the other way or how many of us are too afraid to step out and go and help maybe we're afraid of rejection you know no matter how happy some people appear to be I mean you've heard testimony after testimony up here where people say you know what I acted I, on the outside I looked this way and I looked that way and I looked happy and I looked like I was rejoicing but inside I was dying we are responsible to tell others about God we're responsible to tell him about his judgment. And we're responsible to tell him about his message of salvation. But we're not held responsible for how they receive it. But if we refuse to tell others what we know, God will judge us. Because this is why we're here. I said this earlier, but I want to pick up the thought. There are very few things in this world that are eternal. Your job is not eternal. Your career is not eternal. Your achievements, your hobbies, the things that you... None of those things are eternal. In fact, if you drive by many graveyards, there are some massive monuments and some impressive, probably expensive monuments. But I, I bet the majority of you can look at those and go, you have no idea what that represents. And sometimes their greatest achievement, the only thing that is representing their life anymore is a monument in a graveyard. Because honestly, Steve Jobs, everyone's like, oh, Steve Jobs did this. Listen, 25 years from now when the iPhone is nothing, no one will even, they'll be like, yeah, that was important. It got us here. Listen, nothing is eternal. There's only one thing that is eternal. And that is what you do with your life for God. That has consequences for eternity, not just for a few years. Only what you do for God will last. The only thing that you're going to take with you when you go to heaven is other people. Nothing else. Nothing else. You know, if, a few months ago, I, I gave that illustration where I took that paper towel and had it wrapped around the room, and I said, this is eternity, and your life is about this much of eternity. And God says, listen, will you just take this much of your life, this much of eternity, this small portion of your life, and will you invest it for my kingdom and invest it for the lives of others? Will you take your life and lay it down so that others might know me. It doesn't mean that we have to go and quit our jobs. It doesn't mean that you have to go and be a pastor or a missionary. Some of you, it might mean that. But what God is saying is, man, whether you're a student, whether you're a teacher, whether you're a salesman, a manager, whatever profession you may be, there's somebody standing next to you, wherever you are. There's somebody standing next to you. We're not... He's not asking you to climb across five pews and light someone's candle behind you. He's just simply saying, hey, turn to the person who's in your vicinity. Turn to the person that God's allowed to stand next to you. Turn to the people that you are rubbing shoulders with and light their candle. Um, Lori and I are, are excited to be in a neighborhood. Um, I like hanging out with non-Christians. I just, I don't get that a lot. You know, most of my like, relationships are all with Christians. You know, I mean, it's what I do, I'm around Christians all the time. And it's great. Um, 
But as a pastor who really believes in missions and, and outreach, you know, for me, I kind of go, sometimes I just want to shut everything down and go, let's just go out to Quincy and walk the streets and do something. Because, that, you know, the preach this, I, I want to live it. And, and where we lived before, it was, it was great, but, but everybody knew that, I mean, the pastor had lived there for years. And there's church and there's a Christian college, so, you know. But in this new community where we are, I, I just looked down the street and I thought, man, nobody knows really who we are and it's wonderful, you know. Um, I can walk out there, and when I have conversations and people don't know I'm a pastor, I really get who they are. I love it when people are cursing. I love it when non-believers are cursing in front of me, all right? Um, it was, what's funny is that I'm having a conversation, and they're using terrible language, and it's just like, hey, I'm their buddy, you know? And I just, you know, and if somebody's with me, um, if they really know me, they know it doesn't bother me, but other people will be like, oh, I'm sorry, you know? And I'm like, listen, what bothers me is when you pretend to be something you're not. You know, that doesn't bother me. I don't expect a non-Christian to act like a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're using that kind of language, and then I have a problem. But here's the thing, too. is, but, but sometimes, this is not true of everybody, but some Christians are fake. Like, when I show up, I get the Christian side. I don't get the real side. I, I get the way they're supposed to be. I don't get really who they are. I don't, I'm not interested in who you're supposed to be. I'm interested in who you really are. And then people say, oh, I'm sorry. And sometimes they'll say something and they'll apologize. They'll say, oh, don't apologize to me. God's in front of you all the time. You know, who am I that you have to apologize to me? Just be you. If that's who you want to be, you. You know, whether I agree with or don't agree with it, you know. But, but when I'm around these people, it's nice because and there's part of me that goes, I don't really want them to find out I'm a pastor. I don't mind them knowing I'm a Christian. Because the minute they find you're a pastor, all of a sudden they straighten up and, you know, and I'm called Father, you know? I had one guy call me, and he's like, hey, is this Father Bodley? I'm coming to turn the power on. I said, this is not Father Bodley. I said, and when you see me, you'll know why. I was wearing old camouflage jeans, and I was, you know, fixing something up. And he said, well, Beth told me to say that. I said, okay, thank you, Beth. But, but what I'm saying about this is, is, you know, when we get to this neighborhood, we went to a Christmas Eve party, and I, I was the only guy that showed up. They were all ladies at the Christmas Eve party, so when I do get to meet the other guys, I'm going to have a problem with them. But, but I was there, and it was kind of, it was cool, because we were around all of these people. They don't know who we are, and I, I just, I, I kind of felt like, God, what are you doing here? Like, I feel like this is fresh opportunity that I'm not, they have nothing to do with me. They don't know, but we can just be ourselves, and I can't wait just to live and, and, and to wait for opportunities to speak life into people. And, and, and I get excited when I get to be around people like that the other day. We, uh, we actually went to a place called Damien's last night. It was a pub. Uh, we went there to eat. It was in the middle of the afternoon, but I was walking out with the kids. It was a nice place. And I said, it was kind of good to be there because they run these people, and I just can't wait just to get to know people but I was joking with Lori. I said, if I stumble coming out of this place, it's going to look bad if someone's driving by. But I just, I want to be around people I, I, because God has given us something and God has given me a story and God has given you a story and he wants you to share it with people. And as I realized, as we sat in that little community of ladies and me, um, it didn't sound like any of them were Christian. And I began to realize, I thought, on this street, in this neighborhood, we might be the only light that is really shining. And God has placed us here. And that is a huge, but wonderful responsibility. And you know what my responsibility is? 
is to get some more light shining on that street before our time is up on that street. There are five billion people. There are five billion unlit candles. And guess where they're living? They're living right next to you. And they're working right next to you. And they're working right next to me. And so this is a message that we might know about here, but it's a message we need to really pray that God gives us the courage to live out. That our lighting of candles wouldn't be some beautiful thing we do you know, on a Christmas Eve, but it would be the story of our lives. That we would be lighters of candles forever. How many people, and I'm not, I want you to think, how many people are in heaven? I don't know if heaven's going to be like this, but if it is, are waiting for you to get there because they want to say thank you. They want to say thank you. You know, I, I'm so grateful that you spoke to me. I'm so grateful that you, that you poured it into me. It's because of Jesus that I'm here, but he used you in my life to get me here. How many people can say that about you right now? How many people are on their way to heaven right now because you lit their candle along the way? When's the last time you let someone to the Lord? I don't mean go bash their door down and, 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 and tell them. I mean build a relationship with them. And as God opens doors, share your story, share your life with them. And God, people come towards the light. It's the normal thing. And they begin to ask questions. And, and, and it's, it's a beautiful thing. I get to hear right now, even Lori's work, God is already opening up doors right now for, for her work. There are people coming to her. She had, she had, uh, they had two people in this big argument. They're supervisors. And they both came to her saying, Lori, what do I do? And she's under them. And she said, you need to be a peacemaker. And they both came back to her separately and said, said you know, Lori, thank you. This is what you did. These are lawyers. These are, these are, you know. And it's just, man, God will create the opportunity. And I'm amazed by my wife because she just walks through every door. And I go, man, it's awesome that you did that. But listen, God's not just doing that with Lori. He's doing it with you. Will you have the courage to walk through the doors? Because in, you may be the only light in the business that you work in. You may be the only light in the school that you attend. You may be the only light on the street that you live in. You may be the only light in the apartment complex that you live in. And God has placed you there. With the greatest mission of all, he said, go and light this place up for me. You can't make them take it. But you can present them and point them to him. And that's what our lives need to be about not many things last for eternity but that does I want my life to matter for eternity I don't want to have a monument where I, where I die saying hey he was a good person I want the monument that represents my life to be in the shape and form of people who God used me to speak into their lives that pointed them to him that's what I want my monument to be William James said this, the best use of life is to spend it for something that outlasts it. To make sure that you spend your life on something that lives beyond your life does. I want to close with this from Romans chapter 1 verse 17. It says, my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus. The work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. Is your life mattering right now? In, 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 
in the scope of the kingdom, does your life matter? How valuable are you in the kingdom of God? You're valuable to Jesus, but I mean the kingdom building of God. Is God saying, here's one of my soldiers. Here's one of those who's so committed. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand. And it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let the light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Each one of us here received the greatest gift from God. It shines brighter than the sun. It's more precious than diamonds and pearls, and it's more costly than gold. Don't hide it. Display it for everyone to see. Amen? Would you stand on your feet and let's pray. Lord Jesus, you graciously saw me in my darkness. You saw me in my anxiety. You saw me in my grief. You saw me in every struggle. You saw me in my death, Lord Jesus. And so you came. And you came into my life and you changed me forever. And you've called me. You've called us to take what you've done in us and take it to the people around us, Lord God. Well, Jesus, we just prayed this morning, Lord God, that we would be a church that is defined by light, that's defined by our actions, that's defined by, by us going out to people, Lord Jesus who are walking in darkness and brokenness, who are living in fear, Lord God, and we just pray that you would use us to bring light, Lord God, to them. Lord Jesus, you have placed each one of us in a neighborhood. You've placed each one of us in, in, in a job situation or a different environment, wherever we may find ourselves. God, we find ourselves rubbing shoulders with people who do not know you. And so I would just pray, Lord God, against fear. God, we pray, Lord Jesus, for courage. God, we pray, Lord Jesus, for wisdom, Lord. We just pray, Lord God, for, for opportunities for us to, to walk through, to, to point people to you, Lord God, that we can truly love people to life, Lord Jesus. That we can lay down our lives, that our lives wouldn't be about our agendas or about our goals or about our personal achievements, Lord God, but our, our, our lives, Lord God, would be given and laid down to bring life to other people. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we live our lives for you, it would make eternal differences in the people around us, Lord God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, these altars are open. If you are sick or if you are hurting, if you need prayer, we don't want you to leave. We have an opportunity to pray for you. We love you guys. Have a great new year. We'll see you next week.